0: Welcome to Blue Collar Zen. We hope you enjoy these tales and conversations recorded here at the Detroit Zen Center. My name is Myungju hosting you here. In the spirit of opening up the podcast series, I decided to share my own memories of the stories that my teacher has shared with me over the past 20 years regarding his own journey onto and along the spiritual path, primarily uh, how he found himself on it. And so I hope you enjoy it and take some inspiration. I think it provides a good background. Uh, for the spirit of this podcast. As of today, it's April 6th of 2020, Detroit is vying for the status of having the most rapidly growing number of COVID-19 cases in the nation. It is a heightened time. Uh, The Detroit Zen Center sits in Hamtramck. It's a two and a half square mile enclaved city in the center of Detroit. We are a bit like a borough, uh, geographically surrounded by the city of Detroit, but uh, operating as an enclave. Our neighborhood is very dense and very poor. We are home to about 20,000 people, and many families are first generation from Bangladesh and Yemen. Uh, packed tightly into row housing. So it's an incredible place to have a Zen Center. We have more than 32 first languages here. But it's also a prosperous location for COVID-19, too. Sunim, uh, my teacher here, he is almost 80. I asked him recently if he was worried about getting the virus. He admitted he was a little worried, but trusted that he was prepared to face death, if now was the time. You know, I think ultimately that's the point of all of our spiritual studies to be able to not only have that view, but mean it. And so when I reflect on the years of study that my teacher has undertaken, it's almost implausible. Many of his contemporary friends who were fellow students of the way, of whom many have become teachers in their own right, did things in at their time with their own spiritual teachers that our current generation would almost absolutely not do in order to take up what we now can access through a click or two. These first-generation teachers devoted their entire lives and hearts acting in a way as bridges, translators if you will, between the unfathomable minds of the first-generation of Asian teachers that came to the West during the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. And so we owe them a huge debt of gratitude. In any case, back to Sunim and the blue collars and history. Sunim doesn't talk about his qualifications, but I would like to share a few things. Um, He grew up in 1940s Detroit, uh, was an American football player. He became a public school teacher out of college and taught at uh, uh, the Sophie Wright Settlement House in addition to Cody High School. The Settlement House was an after-school program for troubled youth and was in a relatively dangerous, gang-controlled neighborhood in the city. So when the riots broke out in 67, He took up patrolling as a peacekeeper, along with some other Union teachers. But one of his students died during the riots. He has said that those experiences laid the foundation for his spiritual yearning, and that he left Detroit feeling unable to help. He describes that he used to tell his students that if they studied hard and stayed out of trouble, they could get out, but knew in his gut that he was lying to them. His students were poor, black students living in a racist city, and they were most likely never going to get out. Sunim said he couldn't really live with himself anymore, driving every afternoon out of that neighborhood back to his safe, comfortable home, and so he left. He went on to get his PhD and took up a professorship at Penn State. His field was sociology of sport with a focus in small group dynamics. Eventually, he was hired by the Ontario government as a consultant in amateur sport. While living in Toronto and teaching at McMaster University, he and his then wife became interested in yoga. It was the 70s. He describes coming home one day to their apartment and seeing his wife doing yoga poses to a copy of Be Here Now by the infamous Ram Dass. And within months, they had given away their belongings, including their red Corvette, and for the next three years, moved into an ashram under the tutelage of Swami Vishnu Devananda. Soon after, they took brahmachari vows, which included a vow of poverty and celibacy, and observed other daily practices of asceticism. Eventually, Sunim became the director of the Toronto Yoga Center. became eventually disillusioned with the size, ambition, and financial workings of the organization. He left his full-time study there and took up with a lesser-known, but perhaps more appropriate, Indian teacher, the ascetic Baba Haridas. Baba Haridas only ate one meal a day. He observed total silence and communicated with his students via a chalkboard, which he hung around his neck. His training was apparently quite rigorous, and Sunim describes that one day during their morning meditation rounds, about a year after he began with Baba Das, a Zen Buddhist monk came to visit the ashram. Afterwards, Sunim began being disrupted during his meditations, having visions of this monk, After a while, the visions became so powerful that he brought this dilemma to Baba Haridas. He told Sunim that he needed to leave him and go find this monk and study with him. And so he did. He eventually found the monk, Samu Sunim, living in a leaking basement apartment in a rundown section of Toronto. Samu Sunim was a refugee and a deserter of the Korean army. Monks are often conscripted into the Korean army, especially during those days. Samu Sunim had been forced to carry weapons and was about to be sent uh, into a uh, situation into North Korea, which might have required him to uh, fire. And so he he left and deserted the army, eventually stowing away on a boat to Japan. It was there that he met with uh, a senator, Perry Bullard, who offered to help him flee to the United States, and eventually helped him take refuge in Canada. Samu Sunim had been hospitalized for tuberculosis, and was quite sick and, and, and weak. But he somehow knew that he was going to uh, share his uh, Buddhist training with this new world. And according to Sunim, my teacher, Hwalsan Sunim, Samu Sunim's energy, even as a a sort of a weakened, uh, completely alone individual in a brand new setting without language or culture, apparently his energy was just, just profound. And something was so attractive and powerful about this monk's mind that my teacher asked to study with him. And Samu Sunim agreed but he told him that if he wanted to do that, he was gonna have to move in to this apartment with him and help support them and the Future Center by working with his hands. He asked him if he had any particular affinities. My teacher said he was attracted to wood, and so soon after, he became a carpentry apprentice. His apprenticeship took him relatively quickly into a situation where he was doing form work in high-rise buildings in downtown Toronto. These new high-rise buildings were primarily being put together by Italian crews, which many of whom didn't speak English. So my teacher often says that it was there in the middle of these high-rise buildings uh, with death just a few feet away that he really learned to pay attention. The hallmark of Zen practice. He stayed with Samusunim for the next 10 years and was sent during that time to Ann Arbor to open a Zen center under his wing. But in 1980, Samu Sunim brought my teacher and a couple of other monks on a pilgrimage to Korea. Samu Sunim thought my teacher may need to deepen his training at the monasteries and with another master potentially in Korea. They tracked hundreds of miles by foot and bus crisscrossing the country, visiting temple after temple, master after master. Samu Sunim had brought a small recorder to capture the words of the dying generation of teachers from old Korea. They ventured to meet Korea's living Zen tigers, these old masters, however remote or hard to access they might be. And it was during that trip that Hwal Sunim was fortunate to meet most of Korea's great 20th century masters, all thanks to the persistence and the spirit of Samu Korea is nearly all mountains, 80%, and it is only the size of Michigan, but scattered throughout the mountains are thousands and thousands of temples and hermitages way too numerous to list and all of, altogether they form a kind of dreamlike other world of spiritual community. Some of these communities have existed for thousands of years and are fully alive traditions to this day. It really is hard to believe until you see it. At three o'clock in the morning at the major temples, uh, an enormous 10 foot drum is played beautifully softly reverberating echoing throughout the mountainside it wakes up the entire mountain the main monastery zen centers hermitages and village below the drum is said to call upon all living beings to remember their true nature and live for the benefit of one another each major mountain range in korea is under the spiritual authority of a mother temple called a chongnim there are five mother temples in korea and they are responsible for the well-being of the monks and lay people living on that mountain. And also for the uh, hermitages, Zen centers, and other temples that might be scattered across that mountain range. So it's a decentralized situation with each mother temple autonomous from the Choge order itself, which is the, the main order of Korea about 90% of monks and and practitioners come from the Choge order. And so these mother temples uh, have their own chief monk and Zen master. Samusunam brought Hualsan and the other visiting monks to each mother temple. When they visited Sudoksa, the mother temple of the East on Doksusan mountain, they met the chief monk there, Master Pyokcho. They ducked into Pyokcho's little room and the master's eyes lit up, seeing a couple of blue-eyed barbarians, as they like to say in the East. He gleefully challenged my teacher to an arm wrestling match. Pyokcho was 85 at the time and my teacher, a former athlete and carpenter, was 40. But apparently Pyokcho crushed him. A few minutes later, they realized how. The temple lunch bell rang and they left the room in order to walk to the other side of the compound to the dining hall. Master Pyokcho came out of his cross-legged position on the floor and got on his hands and continued to walk on his hands across the dirt courtyard in order to join the monks for lunch. The master was paralyzed from the waist down but refused crutches or assistance. Later, when my teacher hiked the two kilometers up the mountain to visit a Zen hermitage, his monk friend explained to him that the 1,500 steps carved out of the rock face that they were walking on were chiseled by Pyokcho himself. Later, Pyokcho asked my teacher to stay and study with him. They had a real affinity for each other. My teacher accepted, but asked if he could go back with Samusunam. In order to get things arranged in America, as he was the abbot of the Ann Arbor Zen Center and needed to make sure that his leaving was not going to be a hardship for the community, Pyokcho agreed and told him to come back as soon as he could. My teacher came back to America and made the arrangements necessary. But unfortunately, Pyokcho died the following year before he could come. When my teacher arrived to Korea in a dead master, he was heartbroken. In the Buddhist tradition, it is imperative that a monk belong to a family. So the Sudoksa monks, they stepped in, and my teacher was adopted, so to speak, by Pyokcho's successor, Wondam. So my teacher spent the next several years training in retreats and hermitages around Korea under the gentler yet profound guidance of Master Wondam. In 1989, one Dom told him to return to America and teach. A friend of his from Detroit offered to help him open up a Zen Center in California, where he had moved. But my teacher turned down his kind offer. Instead, he returned to Detroit with $50 and a backpack. He eventually, within a year, took stewardship of a large, historic but abandoned and totally dilapidated property, what has become now our Detroit Zen Center. A few young people, myself included, sort of rough and ready, showed up and thought it was really cool that there was a Zen monk in Detroit. And since we were looking for an alternative to our 1990s culture, some of us moved in. And living a bit like monks, We, along with our teacher, did all the physical renovations under his carpentry leadership. When we needed to raise money for materials, we would do odd jobs around Detroit. It was an incredible experience. Today, the Detroit Zen Center is a bit more sophisticated. You'd never know that the exquisite meditation hall used to be a retirement home for squirrels and bats, or that our lovely cafe and organic food store was a cavernous and leaking pit. It has been 30 years, and sometimes I think of Cho. definitely uh, today as I am recording this podcast, and I wonder what he'd think, seeing his student, now an old man himself, holding down the spirit of what I have come to call here blue-collar zen. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the podcasts.